This passage of scripture we're looking at today, it's, it's listening into a very sacred conversation, isn't it? Because in John chapter 17, where we're turning now as we continue in our series on the farewell discourse of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you can almost sense this holy hush that's beginning to encompass the disciples. They have this sense that their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is about to leave their midst. And here what you and I find is one of the most profound prayers ever uttered prayer that you nor I can utter, because it requires a sinless one to utter this prayer. And here now you find and I find that the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is about to pray to the first member of the Trinity, God the Father. And as he does so, some of the most profound lessons with regard to the way in which God works in this universe begin to unfold for us. This passage of Scripture has ministered to countless people throughout the years. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, on his deathbed said that this was the place where I, quote, cast my first anchor. So what we're going to do is to inch into this passage by considering today the first five verses of what's been called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus Christ. And here, beginning in verse 1, you and I find these words. That after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And so this is deep, it's profound, it's life-changing if you are open to it, because you and I have been given a sacred moment now of being able to explore the relationship between the first and second members of the Godhead and their plan for all of eternity, but also with you and me in mind. So we need to look to God in prayer. Thanking you, Father, for children, children that we can dedicate to you. When we become part of the family of faith, we become children of God, born again, eternal life, here and now, as well as what's to come. We praise you and we thank you for the fact that you thought of us in eternity past. There are no accidents. There's these divine appointments. 
So we praise you and we thank you for who you are and how you work in our midst. And we thank you for that divine appointment that Christ had with that cross where he, in perfect time, went and died for our sins. And I'm praying again in any of these four services today, if there are those coming who are spiritually curious, those who are intellectually hungry for absolute truth, and they're not spotting it, not seeing it out there in the world, that they're going to plunge into the depths of your word, not be content with spiritual or even religious opinions, but utterly interested in what God of the universe has said through the scriptures and come to saving faith in you. Now you know the struggles that are here. You know the challenges that we face. Some parenting burdens weigh heavily on people's minds and hearts. There are relational challenges. But what's utterly important, Father, is that we get our marching orders from you. And that's why we're here. So warm our hearts, engage our minds. Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, said David Brainerd, the tremendous missionary to the Indians of America back in the 1700s. Lying on his deathbed, he went on to say, but to give honor to God. It is no matter where I shall be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high or low place there, but only to live and please to glorify God. My heaven is to please God and glorify Him and give Him all glory, wholly devoted glory to Him and Him alone. When you and I come across powerful statements like that, they should resonate in our minds with what we are seeing here in these first five verses of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Because verse 1 and verse 5 serve as bookends, pulling together some tremendous opening statements by our Lord with regard to His utter purpose of bringing glory to the Father, and thereby experiencing glory from the Father. Because in verse 1, he will cry out, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then bookend it with verse 5 and say, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, as we often state in our studies of the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, glory, of course, kavod is the Hebrew word, means heavy, the weightiness of God. Which means then that you nor I are to take God lightly. 
So we take God's Word with the sense of the gravity of what He said. We ponder God's Son and see the weight of glory on that cross. So what I want you to do now with me is that I want us to begin to feel the heavy, heavy weight of the glory of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in our midst here as we begin to pull out the thoughts in these verses. And notice in particular three significant ways by which Jesus Christ is glorified in this opening passage of Scripture. The first is found here in verses 1 and 2, and we're going to phrase it like this, that Jesus Christ is glorified through the supreme authority he possesses. Now we got to inch into this, don't we? Now, Jesus, after he has done teaching his disciples, now prays to the Father, giving us the pattern that the early church embraced of the core issues of teaching and praying. And now here our Lord is praying to the Father. P.T. Forsyth notes that he is not observed in the Gospels Jesus praying with his disciples, but he does observe Jesus praying for his disciples. This is a prayer that you and I might call the real Lord's Prayer. Because the prayer that we typically think of with regard to the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus did not sin. So I would argue that this is the real Lord's Prayer. Because only a sinless one can pray these five verses to the Father. So this is known as the high priestly prayer. And the one we typically know as, as the Lord's Prayer is simply a model that God the Father has delivered through God the Son to you and me as to how to pray to the Father as sinful ones. So now, here is our Lord, and he has just gotten address, addressing the disciples on how to address the matter of the troubled heart syndrome. And he says, Father, the time has come. Let's camp on that first phrase. I want to notice with you Christ's dual consciousness there. He is Father conscious. He is also time conscious. He says Father, which would have captured the attention of that first century Jew. Because God seems so distant, so transcendent. And here is Jesus speaking as if God the Father is so intimate. Maybe you come out of a religious background where God seems so removed from you, even in your worship experience. 
I want you to feel the weight of the glory here and the intimacy of the relationship you can have with God the Father through the work of God the Son. Jesus began his farewell discourse in John 14 by saying in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. In verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what fascinates me is that five times in John 17, in this high priestly prayer, Jesus prays to the Father, stating, using, describing that word pertaining to the first member of the Trinity. Do you have that intimate relationship with God? Or does he seem so distant to you on a Monday morning or Friday afternoon? I want you to couple that with not only a consciousness of the Father, but the consciousness of the timing. Father, the time has come. And what captures your attention and mine is that throughout the book of John, John has continuously reminded us that in the earlier days of Christ's ministry, the time had not yet come. In John chapter 2, Jesus is at this wedding in Cana. They're out of wine. They're out of wine. Jesus' mother speaks up and she says, they have no more wine. How does Jesus respond? Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Ponder that. His mother couldn't rush God. You ever try to rush God? Ever want to seize control of the timepiece of the universe and reset the clock? Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, is not even willing to do that. His time had not yet come. What about Jesus' opponents? When John chapter 7 and verse 30, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because, quote, his time had not yet come, unquote. Are you submitting yourself to the timing of God the Father? Or do you find yourself wanting to rush God into something that is not yet prepared? Because the time is not yet right. That's why Jesus uttered that statement to his mother in John chapter 2. And that's why Jesus refused to be seized by his opponents in John chapter 7. But now... There is this dual consciousness of father conscious, time conscious. Father, the time has now come. We have a collection of old readers' digests in our house. There's a particular contributor who reflects back upon a scene during the days of World War II. One evening in Albany, New York, I... I asked a sailor what time it was, and he pulled out a huge watch and replied, it's 
I knew it was much later. Your watch has stopped, hasn't it? I said. No, he said, I'm still on mountain time. Mountain standard time. You see, I'm from southern Utah. And when I joined the Navy, my father gave me this watch. He said it would help me remember home. And you see, when my watch says 5 a.m., I know my dad is out milking the cows. And any night when it says 7.30, I know the whole family is around the table and my father is thanking God for the food and praying for God's hand to watch over me. I can almost smell the food now. And it's thinking about those things that makes me want to go out and serve well when the time gets tough. I can find out what time it is, where I am, easy enough. What I want to know is, what's my father's time? Isn't that great? Rushing God? Or are you utterly committed to your Father's time? And do you know Him as your Father? Or is He just some distant relative? I want us to feel, I want us to sense the intimacy of this prayer. Because the weight of the glory now comes crashing down on us in this next statement. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. How will Jesus Christ glorify the Father? By going to that cross to die for our sins. How will the Father glorify the Son? On that third day, raising Jesus Christ from the dead, lifting him into the heavens and seating him at the right hand, where he is acknowledged as authority over all. Because what we're talking about here is that Jesus Christ is glorified through the supreme authority that he possesses. He possesses, not us. But now look very carefully at the way in which God's glory and Christ's authority merge together in verse 2. Break it down phrase by phrase. For you granted him authority over all people. Stop right there. And notice that that's past tense. In other words, we're not waiting till cross, resurrection, ascension, seating. What Jesus is saying is that when I peer over my shoulder into time past, before the world was created, there was a covenant in eternity past in the Godhead. Father, you granted me all authority. It's exclusive. Sovereign. It's total. 
Isn't this astounding then that the one who is granted authority was willing to submit to the timing of his father? If he was willing, as the sinless one, how much more so should I as the sinful one? But you go still further than this. Now you say, okay, he was granted authority in eternity past because it's past tense. You granted him authority over all people. All people, all tribes, all ethnic groups, all nations. That's the extent of it. But now, notice the purpose of this. That he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Which means then, there is a threefold giving. In eternity past, the Father gives Jesus authority. The Father gives Jesus his people. And then Jesus gives the Father's people eternal life. Do you notice the threefold giving coupled with the fivefold emphasis throughout this entire prayer on Father? And so now, what you and I find here is the sovereign working within the Godhead of the threefold giving. It's all there packed into these opening verses. You granted him authority, gift. We normally think of what God gives us. I want you to think of the way in which God the Father gives God the Son. You granted him authority over all people, there's a gift, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Those are two more gifts, all wrapped up in the relationship within the sovereign Godhead. And it's all tied then to the authority given to Jesus Christ which helps us to better understand then why there was such a collision course in the ministry of Jesus because everybody was bumping into his claim for authority. And that's why the Pharisees were so threatened, and that's why Herod was so threatened, even in the days in which Christ was born. And that's why the people in the temple were so threatened. But out of all this then, Jesus Christ raised from the dead was able to say to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples, you see. Because he's got the whole wide world in his hands. Reminds me of that story of when Alexander the Great, conqueror, on his deathbed, commanded that when he was carried out to his grave, brought down the streets, that in his coffin, his hands be extended out of that coffin so that everybody could see he had nothing in his hands. The conqueror was conquered. 
what I want us to be able to see in the divine sovereign plan established in eternity past with the threefold gifting is that when Christ in this eternal plan would die for our sins and three days later be raised from the dead, he's got the whole wide world in his hands. And there's this quiet hush that must be permeating the disciples as they begin to reflect. This is not a gimme. What can I get from God? They're being stirred in their hearts on this tremendous eternal covenant that was established in eternity past. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, part of that plan. Supreme authority. Once we've embraced this powerful, deep, rich perspective in verse 1 and 2, we're ready for the second way in which Jesus Christ is glorified where we don't take Him lightly. That number two, Jesus Christ is glorified through the eternal life He provides. We look at that threefold covenant of gifting described in verses 1 and 2. We see now how it works itself out in verse 3. Now this is eternal life. Mark this. That they may know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent Mark that word, no. Carries with the idea of something deep, intimate, loving relationship to God. Notice that in this whole matter of the giving of eternal life involves the only true God, which means there's a lot of false gods in this nation and in this world. And Jesus Christ, whom you sent. That means then, eternal life means knowing God. Which means God is knowable. Which means that God is personable. Which means that God is personal. Which means then that you and I are called to be moving beyond a religious acquaintanceship with God. Even religious knowledge of God. Because what we are describing here is an intimate knowing of God. Not knowledge about. The knowledge about leads to a knowing. The first member of this trinity Second as well. When Pamela was 19, she was spending time talking to a woman named Amy who had served as maid of honor in our, our wedding. And Amy asked a very powerful question of Pam. 
What does God have to do with your life? Now, the very fact that God would have something to do with your life and my life it tells me that there's something personal, there's something relational, not something someone distant. What does God have to do with your life? And how does what God have to do with your life affect the way you get up Monday morning? and how you relate to people Friday night. Now for me, at the age of 16, after having heard endless evangelistic messages and the likes, to the point where I was probably evangelistically, religiously numb to it all, this sort of encounter with the sovereign God broke into my way of living so transforming me from the inside out. He brought eternal life into the present tense. Because what I want you to see here with this phrase eternal life, it's not meant for sometime in the future after, when you die. Eternal life does not only deal with quantity of time from eternity to eternity. It deals with quality of time as well in the here and now of your own personal experience. In other words, you bring eternal life into the workplace tomorrow morning and that in that tough work relationship you may find yourself in at this very moment. How does this eternal life bring bearing upon the issues that you're facing hour by hour? or the parenting that you are having to address no matter what stage of life your children are in, or what health issues that you're confronting this coming week. Before he died, Dr. F.B. Meyer, great pastor from Great Britain, wrote this to his wife. My dear, I have just learned to my surprise that I have only a few days to live. It may be that before this reaches you, I will have entered God's presence. Don't trouble to write. My dear, we'll meet in the morning. Now, he was such a gifted pastor, I'm unworthy to even tie his shoes in comparison. But I would add this thought, Dr. Meyer, with eternal life, even our evenings, our mornings. Maybe yours is the evening of despair. Maybe yours is the evening of trouble. Maybe yours is the evening of, of troubling health matters, financial matters, or parenting matters, but it seems like the evening. What I want to say is that eternal life is not something still to come if you're a believer. There's a now aspect to it when through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit you're swept in to the kingdom of God, you see. Responding in faith. Understanding now this threefold gifting in the covenant of 
glory. And so no matter what your evening is right now, you've got morning being pressed in into your own personal experience. You sense that. You feel that. Do you know that? Because if you do, you're, you're face to face now with, with real glory. And you're then ready for this third significant way in which Christ is glorified. Then number three, Jesus Christ is glorified through the saving work he completed. Look at verse four in particular. I have brought you glory on earth, Jesus is saying. How? By completing the work you gave me to do. Completing the work. He hasn't even yet died on that cross, yet so certain is he of this finished work. But what I want you to be able to understand is that two are, there are two significant completions in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, at the end of the seven-day period, we are told in the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And now here you find in John chapter 17 and verse 4 that Jesus Christ completes the work God the Father sent him to do. So it naturally ties together with that powerful statement we've sometimes pondered in John chapter 19 verse 30. We're on that cross where the first and last statements on the cross began with Father. you find that Jesus Christ is crying out, it is finished. He didn't cry out, I am finished. He cried out, it is finished. The work of salvation was secured through the work of Christ on that cross. And so in the Roman Empire, where the individual who had been incarcerated finds the jailer coming to that door, and the door swings open and he's set free, he might look over his shoulder as he leaves that cell to see there's one word in Greek, tetelestai, which means it is finished. Appearing over that door, paid in full. Nothing more needs to be done. The term has been completed. You're set free. And this was God's covenantal design in eternity past, you see. And now, Father, glorify me, he says, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began, taking us back into that agreement of eternity past. And how I fits into it all. Which is why Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, wrestling with what is a relationship to God supposed to be, found himself reflecting in a hayloft at a young age. 
and saying out loud that since the whole work was finished and the whole debt was paid on the cross, there's nothing left for me to do. Nothing. But to fall upon my knees and trust the Savior and give Him all the glory. And so you pull all this together, and we're not shocked then as to how Jesus Christ is pulled together not merely past, present, and future in time, but past, present, future of eternity. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, speaking of his ascension to heaven, with the glory I had with you before the world began, before even the world was created. And now you've bookended this, because in verse 1, you couldn't rush God if your life depended upon it, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Verse 1. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Verse 5. And so with that in mind, we honor our Lord and we nod our heads to where we began this morning. When David Brainerd said, I'm going to be stationed in heaven, but whether I have a high or low seat there, it doesn't matter. But to live and please and glorify God. My heaven is to please God and glorify Him. Give all to Him. To be wholly devoted to His glory. Are you settling for simply a religious acknowledgement of this kind of glory? Or do you have a deep, rich, intimate relationship with the one who died for your sins, who deserves to be glorified? Is it real for you? Let me pray for you as we stand. We've listened into this sacred, sacred sharing of the Godhead. But if there are those in any of these services today, tonight, intellectually hungry for truth, but don't have that relationship, spiritually curious about God, but haven't grasped the idea that you are personal. You are personable. Pray like Hudson Taylor. They can understand and grasp now the idea of completion. It's been done for us. We need to fall to our knees, give you the glory, give you the praise. Pray if there's any that don't know Christ now, that relationally they put their faith and trust in Christ and His finished work and find that their hearts now are just being swelled and stretched and they're 
and their soul is being elongated. They're getting it. It's about coming to the Father through the Son. Living our lives to give you all the glory. Praying these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.